You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Sectarian Review Podcast, a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. We discuss culture, history, art, politics, and religion in order to better understand the systems and institutions that cloud our vision of this life. Keep up with the conversation and add to it by liking our Facebook page, following us on Twitter, and visiting our website at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Also, if you like the show, don't forget to leave a nice rating and review at iTunes. And if you ever get the urge to join in for an episode or two, contact us with your ideas. Listeners make the best contributors. Now for the show. Hey, everybody. I'm introducing the show today using a new feature. We have a send voicemail feature on the Sectarian Review Podcast website. Just go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com. Look at the upper right-hand corner of the screen there, and you can click a little button that says Send Voicemail, and leave us a message. If you like what we're doing, if you don't like what we're doing, if you have a specific complaint or compliment, this is a great way to uh, get your voice featured on the show. And you have 90 seconds to do that, and we really encourage you to take advantage of that. And now enjoy the show. Hello, folks. Uh, Danny Anderson here once again for the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks for downloading another episode. Today, I have a fellow podcaster, Micah Redding, who hosts the show The Christian Transhumanist Podcast. And we're going to be talking some technology and some theology and all kinds of good stuff today. Uh, Micah, how's it going today? Oh, it's going awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, uh, feeling a little under the weather. I actually, the Super Bowl was last night as we're recording this, and I was not feeling well, and uh, so I quit watching at halftime and <laughs> apparently I, it was a huge mistake on my part so uh, uh apparently that was a very exciting game so uh, kicking myself just a bit did you yeah, did you watch yeah, it yeah um no i didn't i just watched the halftime show so i'm like uh yeah s- same boat um but yeah there's you know there's lots of uh fun stuff for for me in the you know halftime show the drones and all, all that kind of stuff so you know right down my alley right. yeah yeah lady gaga is sort of transhumanist uh, herself right yeah, <laughs> yeah i think that's what she's going for yeah awesome um well Micah, why don't you uh tell us a little bit about yourself yeah so um yeah it depends on I guess how how deep you want to go into that well, but um, I'm the I'm a software developer by uh, by career, I guess, and uh, I'm the executive director of the Christian Transhumanist Association, and I'm the host and producer of the Christian Transhumanist podcast. Um, and uh, basically, how I you know got into this was um, that I grew up as a preacher's kid in a um, kind of small fundamentalist uh, conservative uh, church fellowship and um, they put a lot of emphasis on on studying the scriptures for yourself and so kind of my my process of um, studying for myself and and pursuing led me into a kind of more orthodox uh, kind of historic Christian uh, tradition and that ultimately led me uh, ironically and baffling to most people uh into transhumanism so that's <laughs> that's where i am 
Yeah, uh, your show, I listened to uh, the Christian Transhumanist podcast. I actually don't even know how I found it, frankly. I just sort of stumbled on it one day. Um, I was probably doing some generic theology search on iTunes, mm-hmm. and somehow mm-hmm. I, I came up with it. Um, and so, uh, which is another reason to uh, actually go ahead and like and rate the uh, podcasts you listen to on iTunes because yeah. it helps other people discover them. So I discovered yeah. your show. Uh, sort of randomly, and uh, I really found it interesting. Uh, you do a bit with like sci-fi kind of stuff. Your mm-hmm. your co-host sometimes uh, mm-hmm. will take the uh, conversation in that direction, and I and I find that entertaining. But the interviews yeah. you do with some of these um, oh, futurist, I suppose, type thinkers, yeah, uh, are is, are just really interesting. And so I was, uh, Mike and I have been talking for about six months via Twitter messages. Uh, about mm-hmm. doing a show together, and yeah. I finally uh, got around to it. And the occasion of it was uh, just the other day, one of my uh, uh, sometimes collaborators on this show, um, Carter Stepper, he shared on Facebook Jonathan Merritt's recent article on The Atlantic called Is uh, Is AI a Threat to Christianity? And so I read that article, and I thought it was really interesting, and I thought, uh, this might be... Uh, an excuse to get this thing done finally. So, yeah. so I contacted you, and we'll sort of talk about that article a little bit. Uh, it basically raises more questions than it poses any answers to, but it, it's uh, they're interesting questions. And so um, I, I thought this that could be the spine of our conversation here about technology, humanism, mm-hmm. theology. Uh, I'm kind of uh, don't really know where this is going, but that's okay. Just like yeah. technology itself, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> Um, the first, there's a term though that I think we should get out of the way for my listeners may, I'm sure that many of them know about this term, but, uh, it, for those who don't, uh, the singularity, uh, what is that? That's sort of a key term when talking about AI. Yeah, so, um, a- absolutely. So there, there are kind of two sides of the, the coin when it comes to defining that word, because ultimately it's a metaphor. It's not trying to pinpoint something exactly the um the easiest way from a technical standpoint to talk about it is just to say it's the point at which artificial intelligence surpasses human intelligence and um and people like like ray kurzweil and um other people have uh extrapolated from something in the computer industry called moore's law which states that basically every 18 months the amount of computer power you can get for a certain dollar amount doubles um and so that's been going on since the 60s and kind of took us from you know computers the size of of buildings to computers that can you know fit on your wrist or whatever and um and so that process is an exponential increase and um, if you extrapolate that and, and look at where that's leading, then according to thinkers like Greg Kurzweil and others, um, you know, somewhere around 2045, um, if not earlier, uh, the amount of computing power, the amount of intelligence in a single computer will surpass the amount of intelligence in all the humans on the planet. Um, and so the, the analogy or the metaphor is about being able to look into the future and you know what we've seen in the past and what we're seeing now is that as change in our society speeds up we we lose our ability to predict what's going to happen next and so you know our grandparents might have worked at the same job for their entire lives you know they entered um 
at, at one level. They maybe exited at a different level, but they worked the same career path. Um, our parents, that was less common. You know, there was there was uh, more changes. And for you know our generation, it's really rare for someone to expect that they're going to still be working the same job 40 years from now. So our window of what we expect about the future has has been closing. Like we don't know most. You know, most people I kind of work with are doing things that didn't exist five years ago. Um, and so as our as our window of, of expectation about the future closes, eventually, you know, hypothetically, it closes entirely and we wake up every morning in an entirely new day. And and that's what would happen if um, if computer intelligence passes surpasses human intelligence, we would just lose all ability to predict what's going to happen next. One question I have about this is, I guess, how do you measure human intelligence, I suppose, mm. to make that comparison? What is the, yeah. I, I, does it assume this sort of uh, neuroscience model where um, that kind of sees the human brain as a kind of computer? Uh, and and if, is that how it is able to come to that sort of comparative yeah, that's a there's there's rough estimates that have been made on that basis. You know, you can you can think about intelligence um, just in terms of its of its impact on the world, right? Like there's there's only a certain amount of information I can read or consume or whatever every day, and there's only a certain amount of things I can do every day, that kind of stuff, and and we can measure that pretty, you know pretty concretely, right? There's no there's no human that's operating like a hundred times faster than every other human or something like that. Right. right. Um, and so, yeah, you can kind of boil that down to um, an estimate based on, you know, the number of neurons or something like that, um, you know, and, and those estimates range around 10 to the 15th uh, power for our kind of neurons or synap synapses in our brain. And so just it's just a raw computational power, like how much information can we process? And yeah, that's we can compare that to what computers are doing now. And um, I think arguably, if you combine all the computer intelligence in the world, it surpasses that of a human brain uh, by those standards. But eventually we'll get to the point where a wristwatch computer will surpass uh, not only the intelligence of one human brain, but the entire human population. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do you ultimately, um, I know that there's debate in kind of neuroscience about the computational model for the human mm -hmm. brain i mean where do you fall on i mean are are the is the human brain a computer or does it actually process information is the computer just sort of the the kind of handy way a handy metaphor if you will for how to we describe how our brains function and because i i think in in earlier eras before computers there were these mechan mechanical models and and, sure. and you had the sort of uh the the fluids and and, and that sort of thing at mm -hmm. another time mm -hmm. and, and so like is this just a handy metaphor or do you think there is something that's more literal about the way the the human brain um, processes sensory information. Yeah, that, that's a really tricky question. Um, so let me try to tease that out in in a little bit of a nuanced way. Um, one one thing that I would say, first of all, is it is it almost doesn't matter for some for the singularity itself. Okay. Uh, now, it absolutely does for our discussion of like. 
you know, is AI going to worship God and things like that, right? That that's where that matters. But in terms of the AI of the of the singularity changing our world in a fundamental way, you know, it doesn't matter what what kind of intelligence that is or what kind of computational processing is happening. Uh, the fact that you know, the fact that Google can figure out a better uh, route to work than we can is just kind of a, a fact of of the world right now, and that has that has you know an, an impact, and those kinds of impacts are going to grow. Does that does that make sense? That it, part it, of it, it does. Yeah, for that part, for okay. the um, the fact that. It, the computational power of AI is, I guess, a different question than mm-hmm. the nature of computation in the human brain, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, go ahead. Well, yeah, so, but we can talk about the, the, the metaphors. You know, we've, we've used all kinds of metaphors in our history for what's going on in not just our brains, but in our in our bodies and the in the world, you know, and and every scientific theory is sort of another set of metaphors, you know. Um, so, in in a sense, um, you know, when we talk about uh, computing, um, we're you know most of us are thinking of like a desktop computer or you know an iPhone or something like that, and our brains are nothing like that, mm. you know. That's that's a that's absolutely the case. They're not organized like that. They're not. Um, they're not structured like that. The the experience that we have inside our brains obviously is not um, happening inside of these computers. Um, but you know what? If when a physicist uh, like say David Deutsch, who's the um, inventor of quantum computing, when he talks about you know computing as being what's happening in the brain. Um, he's talking about a very different thing, a very like a theoretical kind of deep understanding of of how relationships and mathematics and stuff work. And so he would say at fundamentally at the base of all reality is a set of, you know, relationships and and math. Um, and that's that's what we're talking about ultimately when we talk about computing. Um, and so in that sense, then I think, yeah, probably I would agree with the kind of consensus scientific view that, that that's what's going on in a human brain. Okay. Yeah. I, I, there was recently on one, some popular news, it might've been time, uh, a picture 2045, the year we become immortal. You know what I'm talking about? I can't, was it, was it time magazine? Um, I I think so. Yeah. And there was a, a picture of a person basically being plugged into a computer, like the matrix, like you would see in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm, I question that, that image because I mean, that yeah. assumes a compatibility, like a software compatibility sure. uh, or hardware compatibility, excuse me, uh, in terms of between the human brain and computer systems. And so I think, um, that's not exactly what we mean by the singularity. That That's one right. Like potential like version of it, but that's not exactly the same right. thing that we're talking about at this point. Yeah, there's um, the the problem with all of this discussion is like er- everything about it is expressed in caricature, um, <laughs> right. and um, you know from you know this is something we could talk about. Um, I don't know if if you've engaged much with the simulation argument, which people like Elon Musk are talking about, but right. all, all those things are. Are um, you know they're saying something kind of philosophically at at root, but they're expressed in you know in the kind of press and and in images in this really caricatured way that 
isn't actually, you know, pointing at anything in reality, right? We're not going to, yeah, we're not going to, like, plug something in the back of our heads like like the Matrix and, you know, jack into the the system or something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so that's, that's something to keep in mind. Like, there are all kinds of caricatures, and, yeah, absolutely, those caricatures are not, not accurate um and uh but some of us are are trying to get beyond the caricatures and and deal with the things that are actually beneath the surface i guess okay okay that makes sense so i you know just on the out front so you're in the christian transhumanist world right Mm -hmm. so this is the christian humanists podcast right yeah uh, the network that i'm part of and so um i think that uh, i'm really interested in having this conversation to see if those are actually diametrically opposed worldviews mm. and I'm not mm. sure they necessarily are right I mean yeah. I think that there is um, a lot that we sort of hold in common in terms of the mm-hmm. way we see humanity based on listening to your show at least and this yeah. is sort of how I, I see it and so I don't expect this to be sort of like a showdown kind of conversation <laughs> between uh, humanists versus yeah. transhumanists <laughs> um, but, uh, but I hope to learn more from you and I have so far already so Let's just kind of stick with the idea that at a certain point, a computer will have more uh, computational power, more processing power than all the human brains in the world, uh, whatever year that happens. What are the implications for humans then? Since Mm -hmm. as the humanist, this is the the natural question for me to ask. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, the the implications are are huge, um, and in a sense, totally unpredictable, um, because what what this means is that we will not be able to, you know, even devoting all of our resources, um, we will not be able to really understand what's going on. Um, certainly not in time to to do so. So there's all kinds of like kind of nightmare scenarios that come out of that. One is the the um, uh, kind of paperclip apocalypse, um, which is the idea that a, a computer tasked with, you know, manufacturing paper clips um, might just kind of take that very literally and run with it and convert the entire world into paper clips um, and and move out into the universe, you know, converting the the galaxy into paper clips at the speed of light. Um, and it when we wouldn't be able to stop it because it would be more intelligent than we are, right? Mm. Something that's more intelligent than we are basically can't be stopped by humans by definition. You know, it's just it can always it could always outthink us or outmaneuver us. Um, and so those are the kinds of big big problems that we start to face. And so one of the big you know questions right now is how do you create uh, intelligence? that will, you know, respect kind of moral boundaries and things like that. Um, and that's a question that's that's being faced now um, in, uh, you know, the creation of self-driving cars because these self-driving cars are going to have to make moral decisions at some point of, of you know, if they have to sacrifice a pedestrian or another driver or something like that, what are they going to do? Right. And... That's that's already a quandary. That's already a moral dilemma we're having to program into, you know, into machines or help them to learn. And um, so that's a huge kind of big, uh, I, I would say, humanistic, you know, kind of question um, that we're facing right now. Yeah. Um, and so I guess the, what I take from that is not only can we not 
counteract what a computer does because it's ahead of us. We can't mm-hmm. even conceive of it um, until it's it's already moved two steps. We can't even understand what it did until yeah. it's too late to actually um, counteract because it's already moved on to something else, basically. Right. Um, and, and, mm-hmm. and so we'll, it, there's some exponential gap that we'll never sort of be able to uh, um, to to bridge. So the, there, there is one kind of wrinkle we could put in that, which is um, that that's assuming that humans don't um, make any uh, progress ourselves or any changes ourselves um, in how we operate. And so from at least some transhumanists, um, that's not the... Uh, that's not the uh, goal, right? The goal would be to never fall behind the AI, but to keep um, expanding our own intelligence, our own uh, intellectual ability, so that we are just as present in in those decisions as as uh, anything else is right and so that we never lose kind of that never fall behind that gap uh, but we're always staying kind of riding the wave of change there which requires though on some level the um uh, we would have to bring technology into our organic bodies and brains uh in order we would have to become technology ourselves uh, yeah, to uh, to a uh, degree, and and you know, part of that's um, how how do we think about you know what technology is, which is a big thing that that we talk about, but also how do we think about you know the relationship between ourselves and and technology, and we're we're really already doing this, right? Like, um, uh, we you know, I'm wearing glasses right now. Um, my pretty much you know. I communicate much more via a, a, some kind of digital uh, means than I do um, almost almost any other <laughs> means these mm-hmm. days. You know, I'm texting my wife all the time, things like that. Um, but you know, uh, dental implants, uh, pacemakers, um, you know, the the uh, the medicine and everything we've been using for hundreds of years um, has all been this process of of putting technology into our bodies. And actually, if we go back through history, we would say, okay, the same thing. You know, if we look at a, um, you know, famously, like, um, I forget who it is, but like looked at a kind of evolutionary, you know, the like the descent of man kind of chart, you know, right, right. where it's like, um, you know, humans standing upright. And they said, here's the problem with this chart. Uh, the human at the end of that is not wearing clothes. Right. <laughs> and for a, for a human to not wear clothes in a chart like this would be as crazy as as a bear uh, riding a unicycle in a in a similar you know kind of evolutionary chart, right? Like we um, have for our entire recorded history been this species that wears clothes, you know, and um, and we could go back you know farther than that, talking about our relationship with agriculture and fire, the fact that we eat cooked food, uh, which means our stomachs are not as as um, you know strong as as um, you know, they are in other animals and so forth, but we've optimized this kind of use of technology into our lifestyle. So we do that, right? Now, what it would actually mean in terms of like amplifying our intelligence doesn't have to be very invasive at all. Um, there's there's people working on a, you know, kind of a, a brain prosthesis right now. Um, that, <laughs> Sign that, me up for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and... Um, 
And I mean, these are big projects that are going on. Um, the, the this is the Kernel project with uh, Craig, Craig Vintner, who did the Human Genome Project, and um, it's they've been funded to at least a hundred million dollars to do a similar thing for the brain as was done for the human genome, with the ambition that we would be able to, you know, just kind of tape something. Um, you know, to our head or maybe put on some eyeglasses that would have this contained in it and it would be able to interface with our brain. And then we would have access to all kinds of other information, right? Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean like we are, you know, opening up our skulls and, you know, putting a computer inside or something like that, but just kind of taking down some of those barriers between us and computational uh, power and information and so forth could mean that we were just as intelligent, you know, effectively as anything that ever, you know, emerges otherwise. Um, so that's a big, you know, that's a big open kind of question mark uh, in our future. Yeah, I guess that's what I love about this subject is that it is so question filled. Right? Yeah, uh, there in <clears throat> that's what makes it exciting, I think. But I have two um, kind of follow up questions on what you just said. Um, mm -hmm. One, I guess maybe this isn't a classically phrased question, but I see these um, commercials for the, there's a, oh gosh, there's a Samsung, it's some sort of VR thing that people put over their mm. phones and stick their phones mm. on their face. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what it's called now. Well, there's uh, there's Google Glass, which uh, works with a, lar a large number of things. I'm not familiar uh, offhand with the Samsung one, but yeah, I, I'm familiar with the concept. Well, yeah. well, well these commercials, like they, there's some sort of, um, oh God, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, there's some sort of uh, device you put your phone into and you wear it like mm -hmm. visors on your, on, a, mm -hmm. on your face. And it's some sort of you know, a uh, virtual reality sort of experience. Right. Yeah. And, and the commercials, um, I find to be so ironic because they show a people, people in a group, um, where someone is wearing these things and having the time of their life. And it gives the appearance that the group of human relationships is being enriched mm -hmm. by this mm -hmm. one person being drawn out of that group. I think there's like a, an unintentional <laughs> paradox in there. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so is there um, an inherent problem with losing? Are, are we sacrificing too much of what defines us as a social animal by mm -hmm. entering into these sort of uh, interfaces? That's one Yeah. Question. So, yeah, that, um, well, okay. Should I take that or, or yeah, hold yeah. for the? Okay. Take that. I can so, remember the next one. <laughs> um, so the uh, yeah. So I, I think one of the the big questions we're facing right now is have we already um, kind of crossed that threshold? Yeah. And um, uh, you know, it, most of us who spend um, any kind of time on Facebook are encountering this alternate social space, right? And um, for for most people, it became an extension of their you know normal social space and an opportunity to reconnect with people that they never would have connected with otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, I when I graduated college, I was like, I you know, I'm never going to see the majority of these people again. But now, you know, a few years later, Facebook pops back up, and so now I'm friends with all, all of them, and now I know way more about their lives than I ever expected to. You know, it just it kind of like the world actually got smaller in that way. And so there's there's a lot of, of things that are really uh, incredibly positive.
positive about that from, you know, like my, my mom reconnecting with old friends, my, you know, grandmother reconnecting, you know, with, um, like pen pals or something like that from when she was a kid, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I, I think we can, we could argue that, um, that what's happened with, um, with Facebook is that we've lost some of the texture and uh, the kind of broadband, like social emotional connection that we normally experience in life. And that that has lowered these barriers and created this kind of runaway effect. So we, you know, we don't experience all the same emotions and body language and all that that we normally do as social creatures. Right. And without all those cues and feedback and all that kind of stuff, we start doing things we wouldn't otherwise do. You know, we start saying things to our mothers that we wouldn't otherwise say, <laughs> and um, and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff just spirals. And we do that to each other, and and it escalates. So I think you could argue that that virtual reality actually has this chance of giving us back that kind of more natural social interaction, the more empathetic body language kind of way of communicating that we uh, that we engage in at an instinctive level. And so maybe virtual reality could help restore some of that civility and some of that um, the compassion that we normally experience while still allowing us to communicate with, you know, long lost friends and relatives and so forth. Yeah, you make a lot of good points there. And, and I, I think also, um, I wonder if sometimes we're using kind of uh, almost journalistic forms of communication to have mm -hmm. personal communication. And, mm -hmm. and so I think people are, I, I know I, I've recently gotten involved in regrettable Facebook conversations. <laughs> um, and, As have we all, yes. <laughs> well, I usually stay away from it, and I haven't been very good lately. I apologize mm -hmm. to people uh, who will follow me there. But uh, the um, uh, the problem is that I, as I detect it, is that I'm having one conversation, and someone else responds. And to me, it's clear they hadn't clearly read what I in, in read what I read what I wrote uh, and, yeah. and they were responding to something else with this other like diatribe uh, that is taking the conversation into a different direction and I wonder if the more if a more interactive interface like a VR thing where I could mm -hmm. hold up my hand and say well that's not what I'm saying hold on right there right. Um, right. if you're right it, it could sort of better replicate the kind of personal uh, interaction that this is really meant to be uh, yeah. and uh, and there's some sort of disconnect in forms that we're talking about rhetorical forms I suppose yeah in uh, in, in a Facebook conversation um, yeah that, yeah, that makes a so. lot of sense yeah well, you know there's there's a larger problem that I think we are going to experience and we do experience in all kinds of areas not just social media um, and that is basically the problem of abundance, um, yeah. you know, the, the problem of prosperity, which is essentially the problem of choice. And when we have the choices to do many, many, many more things than, than you know, somebody did a generation ago, um, then we have all kinds of ability to do to unleash destructive um uh, destructive choices in, in that kind of scenario. And so like just the ability to communicate with, you know, however many, however many Facebook friends you have, you know, basically instantaneously in mass, you know, yeah. is, is something you didn't have the ability to do 
uh, a generation ago. So, you know, if you were feeling kind of um, bummed or something like that, you might, you know, sit around and eat some ice cream or, you know, curl up with a blanket. But now you can go on a diatribe that will offend and and insult all of, you know, like 500 uh, or 1,000 people, you know, just on impulse. And maybe the next day you're like, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't have had that choice before. But now we do. And that's the problem that we face you know, as, as we become a more, uh, prosperous, abundant society. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. Um, one question I have though. So I, the VR thing, um, as a, uh, potential remedy for some of the failings of Facebook mm-hmm. conversations. Um, I mean, so I can see how it definitely remedies a failing of, of that sort sort of, um, interaction, but, is it a suitable even so is it a suitable replacement for a group of people getting together in the local cafe and, and talking about the issues of the day i mean i i feel like it extend it extends the notion of local for one thing mm-hmm. right and so there's yeah. the, i mean it obliterates the need for that term even um and so um and that that's one thing i appreciate about the podcast frankly is that i have friends who i have never met right but i feel kind of mm-hmm. um intellectually intimate with at least um and they're all yeah. over the country and, and so i think that's one of the the great benefits of of this form of uh, of communication but yeah. um i also think if i could trade that in for just sort of the local <laughs> you know kind of mayberry <laughs> uh you know yeah, right. meeting of the minds uh would i do that I, I don't know uh and so maybe that's me being sort of too nostalgic in my humanism but uh but i, I don't what, what are your thoughts on that yeah, I, I think it's. I think it's. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, d- dimensions to that, right? And and we we definitely want. Um, we want. Um, you know the the complexity and depth and nuance of a of a kind of local gathering, which, like we're saying, you know, virtual reality uh, offers the possibility of achieving with people who are not, you know, conventionally local. Um, um, but you know, but people like you and I have have benefited greatly by being able to develop um, deep relationships with people we we a never would have met and b haven't ever met in real life. Right. You know, um, and those relationships are real relationships. They're not you know they're not false false relationships. We use like things like you know terms like virtual and and uh, simulation and artificial, and these are things that that kind of. That's a caricature, you know, that color our sense of what's happening. But but we're really connecting with people. So I think that our our relationships, you know, as we go into the future, you know, we're going to have relationships in all kinds of different modes and formats, you know. And I, I absolutely want to have a good relationship with my, um, you know, grocer, uh, you know, when I'm checking out, uh, you know, buying groceries or something. But I but I also want to have a relationship with um you know, with people in other parts of the world who we are able to talk about um, deep emotional or, you know, kind of philosophical issues that, you know, most people just don't, <laughs> just won't understand, you know. Right. I, th- I think the, all of those connections, all those kinds of relationships are are good and should be part of our kind of uh, palette of of experiences in the future. Yeah, I and I I recognize my own cynicism and my own kind of uh, suspicion. Like I, I to me, like I I always fall back on the greatest. I mean, 
these new technologies are always pitched to us in the most optimistic of ways. Mm, and mm. The, what I always come back to is, yeah, I mean, I think there'll be people who take advantage of that, but the vast majority of its use will be put towards having more interactive porn, right? And, and right. So, uh, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and I feel like that's uh, my own kind of cynicism, but I, well, I need to <laughs> get over Well, there's, there's actually some interesting, um, you know, uh, takes on that. And I, I don't know, you know, um, the the absolute criteria, but there's an argument out there that that says you know yeah, uh, porn is like the first thing that enters any kind of new media, but porn is quickly disrupted by sociality, and so the argument is that Facebook actually disrupted a lot of the online porn industry because it just was no longer quite as compelling. Mm. So there's there's something that's that's interesting about you know human nature to to explore there, but. But um, but there's also you know a question. I mean I mean this problem of like okay when we get these new things we're going to use them for bad ends. Like we absolutely do that, um, and it, it's kind of that prosperity you know the dilemma of, of abundance thing, which is you know. I now, like when I was a kid growing up, um, I wasn't allowed to have sugary cereal. You know, I could eat Cheerios or something like that. But now as an adult, I can just uh, consume a pound of sugar every day, just raw <laughs> sugar, if I want to. You know, I could just kind of pour that into my mouth and <laughs> and just, you know, do that, right? So my, you know, and in fact, you know, like just kind of if you if you think about what we mostly consume as a society uh you could argue that we're a lot closer to that than not um but you know that's a um that's a dilemma where now we have to develop the ability to to make those kind of difficult choices make those kind you know kind of develop the character to use these things in in good ways and uh, uh the article um that we were talking about um mentions Kevin Kelly, who I interviewed on my podcast. And, um, you know, one thing he talks about technology is he, you know, he's had a very kind of checkered relationship with technology, kind of going from a a hippie anti-technology person um, and uh, to kind of like living in an Amish lifestyle to uh, to ending up founding uh, Wired magazine. And he, um, you know, his his take is that technology is maybe uh you know every every new technology that comes releases like maybe 49% bad things and maybe 51% good things and so like the the good and the bad are almost equal but there's a little bit of a bias toward good that comes out of any new technology and it's just small you know it, it, we still have to deal with all these bad things that come out of it but that small kind of edge gives us the ability to do new things and do new good in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'll have to hold off on that proportion. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm still, I'm the, you know, the pessimist. I, I think of, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, so of all the good things that came out of, um, say, the splitting of the atom and the ability right. for nuclear power and all that, the nuclear bomb, even though it may be smaller in proportion, has a much larger uh, implication <laughs> than, sure. than, than some of the good things. It could literally wipe us out entirely. And so I, I tend to be more pessimistic about that. And I don't yeah. mean, I don't want to belabor that point at all, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I don't, I, and I totally do uh, understand that there are paradoxes to every new invention, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, as you're 
making not only complexities, but you're making problems with mm-hmm. the solutions. And and those yep. new problems require new solutions. And this is the way technology works, right? Yep. Um, the other uh, initial question I had about this this topic, though, about uh, originally we were, we were talking about um, the enhancing of human beings, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking about eyeglasses and, and things like that. And I, I wear them. In fact, I just got bifocals. So I'm yeah. wearing them right as we speak <laughs> so I can actually uh, do my work while I, I do this. And so, yeah. Um, and so, and that's a great technology for me, right? And so, mm-hmm. I do wonder though. Uh, I mean, so if there's a difference between a kind of technology that enhances our life um, as we live it, and the kind of technology that seeks to immortalize us, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily equivalent. And if we are talking about immortality for human beings, um, is this not some sort of actual problem uh that Mm. that we have i mean i i feel like immortality is a problem more than a solution uh and i just want to know if that's where you think this enhancement of humans or this technological enhancement of humans is going first of all and b Mm -hmm. if that is a problem for a transhumanist yeah so yeah let's let's talk about that there's there's several different things to unpack so but if you could tell me like um what would you say are the problems of becoming immortal that you're kind of focused on? Well, um, environmental. Uh, so if I'm, let me start with the kind of material world. So environmental problems, I think are, are one, I, I don't know that, uh, um, and it, a habitat can continually support an ever expanding, uh, growth of, of, of population. And if mm-hmm. it doesn't, if, if we decide, well, we just don't need to have any more babies then, then I think you won't run into a problem with uh, calcification and just sort of uh, mm-hmm. incestuous ideas, basically, mm-hmm. without new blood being pumped in. And mm-hmm. so um, and so there's on that material level, I think it's a problem. And uh, I mean, I just think it's the way of nature for one thing to pass away and for another to take mm-hmm. its place, right? And, and also, I think on a spiritual level, of course, we'll get to the, the theological implications of all this in a bit but mm-hmm. I think that's probably the bigger problem <laughs> if if I can achieve immortality through uh, you know a, a chip I put in my under under my skull then yeah. uh, what's Jesus got for me right and so uh, yeah 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 <laughs> so I actually you know I probably have more of a kind of definitive um, answer from a theological perspective than I than a, um, a technical perspective but um, yeah in in terms of um, in terms of that, you know, it's probably worthwhile to make some distinguishing kind of uh, definitions. And, um, you know, uh, this comes up a lot uh, when, like, if we talk to a, bio- a biologist, they can tell us that there are certain kinds of creatures that are biologically immortal um, that exist on Earth. Um, and that just means that they don't, uh, they don't have a natural kind of termination point. Um, that, you know, they, they might get, you know, eaten or something like that, but there's nothing that intrinsically within them says, okay, this is your termination point. So those kind of creatures exist on earth. Um, and so if we, you know, so a biologist might talk about being biologically immortal or a human becoming biologically immortal, but it wouldn't actually mean what we think of when we talk about immortality, right? It would just mean a, a, um, well, specifically, it wouldn't mean that we stopped dying specifically. Um, it would mean that our causes of death changed. And so uh, um, easier to understand term is usually longevity. 
and um, and extending longevity, and that's what most uh, most of these research projects, like Google's Calico Labs or Aubrey Gray's uh, Sens Foundation, that are working on um, radically extending uh, human longevity. That's what they're they're talking about, and all they're talking about from a technical standpoint is basically curing um, disease, and uh, our our kind of misunderstanding is that we assume that humans um, naturally kind of have a termination point uh, where we just kind of you know dr drop over at some you know at some point but actually all that happens is that disease progresses in the human body until we can't take it anymore and um, and we die and and the leading cause of disease or the leading cause of death in uh, the year 1900 was infection. Uh, as it was for all of human history prior, infectious disease, which was a horrible way to die. We changed that. Our life expectancy went from 35 years to you know 70 plus years uh, worldwide, and um, and we now primarily die due to heart disease, um, cancer, or uh, things like dementia. And so, if we were to cure heart disease, cancer, and dementia, we would have a, a, achieved what biologists call um, biological immortality, okay. um, but we would still walk in front of buses. <laughs> like we would still, we would still die. It, it would just be that we don't, we no longer die due to, you know, quote unquote, diseases of old age. Um, we we die actually in a in a way that our hunter gatherer ancestors did. Like our hunter gatherer ancestors primarily died uh, due to accident. Um, and so they didn't know exactly when they were going to die. It wasn't, you know, that, okay, when you hit uh, 30 years old, you're done. You know, they still had people who were, you know, 60 or 70 or something like that. But the, they, you know, were mostly dying in hunting accidents and stuff. And so we would return to that kind of more ancient process. So that's what's, you know, they're being, they're talking about from a technical perspective. Um, and whether that results in, you know, environmental problems um, or, you know, or these kind of other social issues is kind of a bigger, um, a, a bigger question. And w one of the ways we could talk about it is, you know, the, that it's, it's entirely contingent on how, you know, how we develop sustainable technologies and so forth. Um, and, you know, we, we've increased the carrying capacity of the world from, you know, a, a million humans up to 7 billion humans. Uh, with appropriate technology, we can keep increasing it if we want to. Uh, we just have to have the will to do so. Okay. All right. Well, what about? Well, let's hold off on the spiritual things. That's my next question, I guess. Um, <laughs> the second half of the show here. So uh, <laughs> I, I figure we have uh, I don't know maybe half an hour left to go. And so um, <clears throat> the point of Merritt's article was the sort of theological ramifications of art artificial intelligence, and it seems like you're leading right up into that. What are then um, the theological implications of an AI. I mean, he gets into things about do these machines have souls, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and so there's all sorts of interesting questions that he raises. Um, is there a, a, a need for redemption in, 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 a, in a created being like that? And, and so mm -hmm. I, wherever you want to begin that conversation, just go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you would ask the question. Yeah, so you know, for me, I think, and at a practical level, the the question is ultimately going to be very simple, um, and that's going to be if a 
if, if one day a robot comes to me and says, you know, uh, tell me about God, I want to, I want to pray to God, <laughs> um, then I'm going to say, okay, let's, you know, let's talk about it. And um, if they say, you know, if, if they, um, uh, you know, so the, the article kind of quotes Pope Francis talking about if the Martians show up and say, we want to be baptized, he would just do it, right? right. And, um, and so that's, that's ultimately, I think, the answer. Uh, it's a very simplistic answer, but I think it, it comes from a, a very uh, big <laughs> theological kind of uh, thought process. But the, the answer is that, you know, our experience of another being having a soul or having consciousness um, is, is from our experience, our relationality with that being. You know, if we can communicate and understand that being and in that, you know, in that communication, we experience it as having, you know, consciousness and thought and concern and all that kind of stuff, then we kind of know what we're dealing with. I mean, that's how we deal with each other. You know, there's, I don't have any kind of, uh, you know, epistemological uh, secret key where I can walk around and be like, yep, that person over there, they have a actual, in, you know, internal experience, you know, I, I just interact with them and that's how I know that they do. Um, and so I think that's, that's where uh, we have to, I, I think that's what it will actually be um, when it, when it comes down to it. But yeah, the question of how do we think about that, you know, like, do they have souls? Do they have, um, you know, what kind of creatures are they? Um, how do we frame that in terms of like the kind of biblical narrative? That brings up all kinds of questions, you know, like image of God and, and so forth. Um, for me, you know, I, I think image of God is is about um, having a creative and relational nature. I think we're beings that come out of relationship. And so I think if we're talking about the possibility of of creating self-conscious AI, then we're talking about, you know, creating beings out of relationship and that have the potential to relate to us and to each other. And so I think they have a, you know, that's, that's the category, the theological category they would fit into. Um, so one question I have, um, let's just start with AI as a concept. My I guess as a future, as, as I'm putting on my futurist hat, uh, I, I when I think of AI, I don't think of individual machines that have individual consciousnesses like C3PO or something, right? That what I'm mm -hmm. seeing is a network of like my vacuum cleaners connected to some larger consciousness, and it's just sort of an apparatus of mm. that consciousness. And so, are we? I mean, are we talking really about one intelligence that needs to? Um, or that would that the question about reconciling with God would, would or mm -hmm. it would come into, or are we talking about like all right, my so my vacuum cleaner uh, wants to be saved, but my uh, but whatever my my back <laughs> massager doesn't or something, right? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so uh, there's there's lots of different ways you know we could see this emerge, and certainly. Um, 
I, you know, I think maybe it's it's important to distinguish between intelligence and consciousness um, here, and that's kind of something that gets glossed over uh, in these discussions um, because intelligence is not necessarily consciousness, right. and we we you know we have a world that's suffused with technological intelligence, um, but as far as we know, you know, no real consciousness um, going on anywhere. So it, it's not a question. You know, we could end up in a world where we have, you know, um, this vast intelligence that has no consciousness um, and that, you know, makes decisions and those kinds of things, just like Google, you know, Google Maps or whatever makes decisions about which way we should go and, and all that kind of stuff. And maybe those decisions we don't understand, but that consciousness might never um, you know, have any kind of bigger concerns or care about uh, relationships or or uh, spirituality or God or anything like that. Mm. The question then is like, do consciousnesses emerge at some point in this process? And the and the answer is like we don't know. The um, you know, some people think okay, a consciousness will naturally just kind of pop out at a certain point. Um, you know, kind of like the the internet coming alive or you know waking up or something like that, right? right. Um, and, and so that, you know, if, if something like that happened, then we might end up with, yeah, this vast kind of global brain that now suddenly has, um, has opinions about theology. Um, or we might have to, um, much more specifically, uh, create conscious beings, you know, um, if we, if we want to go down that path. And so, you know, that's much more the kind of like, okay, here's a robot, you know, or walking around and it's, you know, conscious and it, and it thinks about you or like in the movie, her, um, you know, your operating system is, um, this conscious being that, uh, you can develop a relationship with, mm-hmm. um, those kind of scenarios are are different scenarios that would require, you know, in that case, like s- somebody saying, "Yes, we're going to create conscious beings," um, and uh, but yeah, I don't think your back massager is going to, you know, probably s- become individually conscious anytime, you know, anytime soon, right? I, that's probably not what's going to happen. It's either going to be this kind of uh, weirdly emergent process that just shows up. Um, or it's going to be where people specifically decide to um, decide to create it and have figured out how, yeah. and um, and then would have to be very um, very thoughtful about where it was okay to do that, right? Like putting putting a conscious being in a back massager is probably not a good idea. That's not you know what a <laughs> conscious being probably wants to spend the rest of their life doing. Um, <laughs> But um, but on the other hand, we do bring uh, conscious beings into existence all the time without their you know without their say, right? We have we've had babies and ha- have been having babies for all of all of history, um, because we felt like that creation of new new beings was somehow valuable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. This is this is interesting. I my mind wants to go into this sort of. Uh, 
like uh, Marxist reading of labor and uh, and the proletariat <laughs> here based on that. But I, I don't want to do that right today. So um, that, but I think you're saying some really interesting things there. Have you ever seen? It's a really terrible movie called Transcendence. Yeah, uh, I have. I, yeah, I mean it's a, it's a terrible movie that I find really interesting. Right. And yeah. So it, in its badness, I think it's really interesting, and it raises yeah. interesting questions. I think. And so in that case they do find a kind of plug. There's like a, an outlet basically into Johnny Depp's brain, basically <laughs> that they figure out how to upload his consciousness yeah. into, a, into a computer, which when it gets uploaded to the World Wide web, it then can control everything in the world. And, and, and of course who can do anything useful with that premise, but, uh, but it right. is an interesting question. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think the, the kind of, it, uh, intentionality that you're talking mm-hmm. about in creating a conscious being um, mm-hmm. is a different act than just creating um, like a sweeper that walks around your room, right. knowing, knowing when something is dirty and pick and cleaning that up, right? Right. And so, right. yeah, that, that's a good point. All right. Um, another kind of theological question I have, though, um, and this I guess goes to the whole transhumanist project in general, but particularly mm-hmm. with this to this question of the whether robots need saving. Um, Mm -hmm. So part of salvation, (laughs) as I understand Christian salvation, and maybe this would mean having to redefine what that means in this era, um, Mm -hmm. but is that you submit your own will, right? You you humble Mm -hmm. yourself before God, right? And so Mm -hmm. doesn't that, um, how does a robot do that? How does a robot that is creating that is identifying problems and creating solutions to problems based on its algorithms. Uh, how does it know? Well, this is not what God wants me to do right now, right? And so I need to humble mm-hmm. myself before that intellect outside of myself. Like, and that's mm-hmm. that's an issue that I have with, um, I suppose, technological advancement for its own sake, um, mm-hmm. without a kind of moral guide, a moral conscience. Mm-hmm. And like, I, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I absolutely think that like the kind of moral um, guide, um, or you know, I would I would generally talk about like you know values driven um, uh, pursuits um, is is essential, right? Like, yeah, creating things just for um, certainly like creating power for its own sake is not um, not a good thing. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of like a computer or a robot, like struggling with these things, it, it comes back to that kind of consciousness question. Like, is it actually exhibiting consciousness or not? If it's just pursuing algorithms and so forth, I, I think we can we can say, and and this is something the article brings out um, uh, that uh, Christ, Reverend Christopher Binnick talks about, uh, and he's part of our association. Um, he he. Um, you know, he talks about the fact that, you know, in, in the scriptures, uh, redemption is not limited uh, to human beings. It's limited. It's it's expanded to the entire cosmos. Uh, so, you know, Colossians one uh, chapter one talks about, you know, Christ redeeming all things, you know, all, all things um, kind of finding their their connection uh, to him. And Romans eight um, talks about. Um, you know, all creation longs for the children of God to be revealed because, you know, it, it's 
in the hope that creation itself will be liberated to join in the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So the you know the good news of the gospel is not just for human beings; it's also for the entire cosmos and mm-hmm. and the sense that. Um, if we as humans were doing the thing that we were commissioned to do in the scriptures in Genesis 1 and, you know, Psalm 8 and, and Hebrews 2, which is to basically cultivate and, uh, you know, cultivate the life of the world, um, that's our God-given mission, then the whole world would be kind of re- rejoicing in that um, in that. Uh, experience. And um, so even a non-conscious robot, you know, there there's a potential area where that can become, you know, like part of the, the will of God, like pointing, you know, it, it, moving in the direction of the will of God uh, by, you know, we, we would talk about pursuing these values of cultivating life and, and relationship and, and so forth. Um, a conscious robot would be able to um, go further and cultivate those values through uh, the process of creating new things, you know, and, and the process of engaging in relationships itself. Um, and if it did that, then, you know, in, in any kind of relationship, we experience what you're describing. Like we have to kind of submit ourselves um, to not just the other person, but the, um, you know, the kind of good of this relationship as a whole, right? To recognize the value of of these things that are outside of ourselves, and to to work for the, their benefit, not just our own. And so that that's any kind of conscious being would be able to would would wrestle with those kinds of questions, I think, um, and and thus would struggle with the problem of sin and the the need for redemption. Yeah, and I, I guess at some point later in that article. Um, Merritt talks about somebody who proposes the idea of catechisms for robots. Yeah. Uh, and, and which is an interesting, uh, which, and, and to me, I immediately went to Asimov's, uh, I robot thing with the, uh, mm-hmm. the, I forget what he calls it, but the, uh, the basically rules, the 10 commandments of being a robot. Oh right? yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, and so to me, I, that does kind of feel like a catechism, a, a, a statement of, um, mm-hmm. positioning oneself in the greater universe outside oneself, right? And yeah. so, and, and I think that when, a, if a machine ever gets, ever attains the ability to proclaim itself a self, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then yeah. um, it would have to then <clears throat> at least start wrestling with those questions of um, its relationship to other selves in the universe. And, and mm-hmm. is there some sort of guiding force? Um, I, I guess, I mean, I have so many questions <laughs> we could go on all day. I don't <laughs> want to keep you, uh, but, uh, I, another question I have is about whether all, cre- I, whether God or whether Jesus came to redeem all things means mm-hmm. things that God created and that are part of the fallen universe of, of mm-hmm. our earth, or is there, uh, or do the things that we make, get Mm. looped into that as well right uh and so that Mm -hmm. that's a i guess a philosophical question um that probably blade runner addresses more than almost (laughs) any movie i could think of i mean that whole movie has sort of god metaphors and i mean Mm, yeah and and god doesn't come out too well in in that universe the person who who stands in for god at least right and so yeah um and so yeah um that's interesting um do you have any thoughts on that 
Well, so yeah, I think I think this comes to back to our discussion about you know artificial versus natural, and we have this tendency to categorize you know things that way, like you know the the things that we make are artificial, the things that um, other things made are are natural, um, and. I think that's a, a problematic way to to describe things. It's a problematic way to think about things, and um, you know that goes back to my kind of my understanding of the the kind of biblical uh, viewpoint on the world and the universe. And and you know Genesis one, um, God creates all these things. And he he basically looks at them and takes joy in their appearance, and you know he calls them forth. You know, let the land produce vegetation, mm. and then he sees that it's good, and he blesses it. And then he turns and he says, "I'm going to now create a being in my image and my likeness." And so he creates this being, and then he tells that being to do the same things that he was doing. You know, create and cultivate life, um, name and categorize creation. You know, that has the animals coming to Adam and Adam naming them, and and um, and then, you know, even in the Noah story, we see, you know, humanity finally acting in this redemptive way that God wants it to by like protecting all the animals in creation, yeah. right? Through the creation of a giant technological artifact, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That's what Noah's Ark is, is, is that humanity has now joined its own creative abilities, its own creative powers that God gave it to do the work that God was doing. And so there's this, um, you know, there's this kind of like um, symbolism that uh, early Christians tapped into uh, to some extent with the, you know, the seven days of, or the six days of creation, on the seventh day God rested. And I think what we would look at is, okay, so the culmination of God's creative work was to create a being who could partner with God. Um, and then that gets derailed through the biblical story. Um, but the, the ambition was that uh, on the, the next day, you know, after the seventh day, the eighth day, God would resume that creative work, but now in partnership with humanity. Mm-hmm. And so Christians, when they look in early Christians, when they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, they talk about it happening on the eighth day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk they connect that specifically with this idea of new creation that God is now fully in partnership with humanity now working to continue that collaborative creative work so i think that you know the 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 redemption restores humanity to its proper job which is to cooperate with with god and use its technological abilities to do this work that God does, that God wants us to do. And I think that erases that kind of artificial and natural uh, distinction because, you know, that that act of creation and, and design and care and, and cultivation is the specific connection between um, our work and God's work. Yeah, that's very... And honestly, I feel like this is one of those places where there's a real synthesis between your... Um, project of Christian transhumanism mm-hmm. and, and the Christian humanist network. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like the, we're sort of called to sort of celebrate all the things that human beings do well, right? And, and mm-hmm. to investigate and learn those things. And so um, learn about those things. And so I feel like what you're arguing for here is very similar uh, yeah. in, in its own, I mean, in its own focus on technology. Um, mm-hmm. One last question uh, as a challenge, I suppose. What does a transhumanist, a Christian transhumanist particularly do with 
um, the story of the Tower of Babel. Oh yeah, so um, yeah, that's that's great, and it comes up all, all the time um, uh, because it's kind of used as this story of humanity uh, doing too much. You know, it's kind of like thought about, you know, like Icarus flying too close to the sun or, yeah. or whatever that is, you know. Um, but the the biblical story there is is actually really interesting because, like I said, it just fo- it follows on the the heels of this story where God asked Noah to build the largest uh, technological work that had ever been, you know, been achieved. Uh, and then it comes to this. And I think in the story and in the like trajectory of Genesis as a whole, like the meaning of that story is is absolutely clear. And we've just focused on um, uh, on a little bit of one element to the detriment of the story. And the story is this: that God sends humanity out into the world, mm. and that was you know when God created humanity uh, in you know Genesis one and two, um, He commissions them to basically, you know, fill the earth um, and and tend it and cultivate it, okay? And so the Garden of Eden was just a starting point. It wasn't, it wasn't the end result that God was looking for. It was the launching point of this project of humanity to fill the earth and help bring it life. Um, and so when humans, um, when, when humans come back out of the ark, the, all those things are reiterated. God says, you know, fill the earth, uh, do all this stuff, right? Bring, bring life, cultivate it. Like the, the human project is renewed, is relaunched. And, um, and what immediately happens is that those people go out and they say, we don't want to be scattered across the earth. If we instead build ourselves a city here, uh, with a tower that's really, really tall, then we will build a name for ourselves and we won't have to be scattered across the earth. Mm-hmm. And so this is precisely a rejection of the, the human mission. It's a, it's a dead end in kind of the development of the human race from God's perspective. And it's a rejection of what God has, has specifically commissioned them to do. And it's set up in such a way that all through the book of Genesis, cities are kind of like uh, bastions of evil. Yeah. Uh, Cain, Cain murders his brother and then goes and founds a city. And so that kind of gives you an idea of how the book of Genesis looks at cities, right? So the, the Tower of Babel is a little bit of a misnomer because what they're doing is they're building a city with a tower. Mm. And so God comes down and what he does is he looks at that and he says, okay, you know, this, this will not stand. This is not going to, to, um, because they're going to be able to accomplish this. Humans are capable. They, you know, I've equipped them with all these abilities. They're going to be able to prevent themselves from being scattered across the earth. They're going to be able to stand in the way of the the uh, development that I want for them. And so God introduces diversity. God introduces this kind of, you know, this linguistic diversity as a prevention of this kind of like um, hierarchical tyranny that they were trying to create within this city. And so they get, they become scattered across the earth. And so I think that's a powerful lesson uh, for us. First of all, you know, that, that, um, uh, that you know, God intends uh, for humanity, in in a sense, to to spread and explore and discover uh, new things and to cultivate life in new places, and not just to kind of like build walls around ourselves and and um, hold ourselves up in one you know one place where we feel safe. Um, and and that God's kind of key to that, 
his key um, way of ensuring that we actually do that is to make sure that we are diverse and that we're uh, a, a di very diverse humanity. Um, and, you know, we, we get some kinds of uh, interesting, you know, connections to this in the New Testament when the, the speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost sort of kind of reverses the the uh, inability to communicate, you know, the, the, all those languages are rejoined, right. not, but not by everybody speaking the same language, but now by everybody being able to understand each other's diversity, each other's languages. And I think that's the direction of the biblical story, right? It's to more diversity, more exploration, more discovery, more creation, more life, and never kind of, you know, into this, um, never into these walled gardens, never into these places where we, you know, we just kind of lock ourselves away and say, this is it. Yeah. Um, so in the parlance of those Silicon Valley guys, God is a disruptive technology. That's, that, right? that's uh, exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think that's a really good reading actually of the Babel story. I do think that to read the garden of Eden story in the same way is mm. to um, under uh, underplay, I guess the role of the fall. I mean, I, I think I you're that assumes that God intended the fall to happen. I suppose, which I suppose um, is a theological position to have. But well, that, and that's not that's not the position I, I'm taking. And um, if you know, yeah, I, I might maybe kind of glossed over that. I, I'm saying the 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 Garden of Eden was always like an incubator, like a cradle of, of human society. I see. Um, and so God intended for humanity to grow up in the, you know, like grow up in this cradle uh, as the way the story is told. And then to, then to kind of venture out of the I nest, see. you know, and go out into the world. Now they, what happened is, as I read the story is they grew up too soon. Yeah. Um, and so God, you know, God puts two things there. God had said, you, you know, they are in my image and likeness. So, you know, God wants them to experience the life of God and the knowledge of God. And he puts these two, you know, two trees there. But he says, but you're not ready yet. Right. You know, this, if you take this too soon, then it's a problem. And I, and I think that's, you know, so what happens is, yeah, they, they take it too soon. They get kicked out of the nest, you know, into the cold world uh, before they're ready. And the kind of biblical notion of humanity is like is you know this this creature that had to grow up too soon and that's yeah. traumatized from that experience okay. so I so I don't t necessarily take like you know uh, a theological position like that or see but I but yeah I, I see it as you know stepping stones I guess no that clarification is, is good that that works for me um, and, and in that sense you could say that the man's sin was in, in using this technological term that they were trying to be the disruptor, right. Instead right. of allowing God yeah. to do that. Right. And so, no, I think yeah. that, um, that, that actually works. And so, and, and you're right now that I, I think about it, I mean, childbirth was always going to be there. It just pain mm -hmm. became associated with it um, right. after yeah, they absolutely. ate that fruit uh, on their own volition. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's a really, I think that, that, that's a, uh, that's an answer I can live with. I think, um, uh, and, and I always think of, um, Kafka, of course, I love Kafka. And so he has this, uh, <laughs> little parable it's a very it's like an aphorism basically about the tower of babel and he said the the tower of babel would have been allowed to be I can, i'm paraphrasing would have been allowed to be built if it could have been built without ascending it um uh, mm. if, uh, and so basically <laughs> if you could have built that without ascending it yourself right. and trying to achieve 
uh, whatever equality with God, then he would have, then the work would have been permitted. I think that's what <laughs> yeah. he says. And so, um, uh, but yeah, but uh, I think you have a, a, a also interesting answer. Uh, <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> um, well, Mike, uh, I really appreciate this. This was such a, an interesting conversation. I hope to do something like this again. Uh, yeah, maybe, as a to. technological story comes up uh, in the future, I hope you are willing to come back. This was really yeah. interesting to me. Um, do you want to tell us about how people can like find out about you and your work and, and I'll put yeah. the links in the show notes. Sure, definitely. So, um, yeah, the Christian Transhumanist Podcast uh, is uh, we've talked about the Christian. Tra- that's just ChristianTranshumanistPodcast.com, and yeah, I have interviews with Kevin Kelly and um, Science Mike and some of the people mentioned in um, in the article we're talking about, um, and so kind of both theological and technological worlds. Um, the Christian Transhumanist Association, um, which you know, we're just trying to pursue a better conversation around these things. That's at christiantranshumanism.org. And, um, and then, you know, I do a lot of writing on kind of my, my thinking about theology and how it connects to some of these, these subjects, and that's at micahredding.com. All right. And I also saw when I was looking you up through, there's a little TEDx talk you do that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, where was that at? Yeah, so you can actually find it by going to micahredding.com slash TEDx, and uh, the talk is called We All Live in the Developing World, um, and so yeah. Yeah, that was that was a that was a cool talk. I like that. Um, I'm kind of thank ambivalent you. about TED talks in general, but I liked yours. That's good. So, <laughs> um, all right, Michael. Well, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate it. And yeah. I, uh, to all of you, those of you who are listening, uh, I really do recommend taking a uh, look at his work. It's it's really some interesting, thought provoking stuff for someone like me who's sometimes too mired in old books. Uh, it's it's <laughs> nice to think about where things are going. So, um, well, so, I love it. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me.